This talk is called Dharma Gates Are Numberless. So what does this word Dharma mean? The word that Buddhists never bother to translate. The, the root meaning of the word is probably something like law. Um, in Hinduism, Dharma means something like duty. So when you have the Bhagavad Gita, you have Krishna arguing that Arjuna fulfill his duty as a warrior and go to war even though he may kill his uh, compatriots and family. It's his duty, it's his dharma. In Buddhism, dharma is not understood in that way at all. In fact, the Buddha quite clearly um, had nothing to do with uh, the duty of caste or birth. He sought to transcend that. And the Dharma that he therefore teaches is not a law that defines how you should behave according to your status or gender, but according to your sharing in humanity. That this Dharma is a, a, a universal law. It has nothing to do with any particular people or culture or anything else. In Mongolian, uh, Dharma is translated as Nom. And Nom comes from the Greek Nomos, Nomos we have economy, the nomos, the law of life. Economy, nomos. Dharma clearly was understood by the Mongolians and they would have picked the Greek up from probably a, a forgotten Central Asian culture where Greek would have been the language, at least in, for commerce. So for early Buddhists, Dharma clearly meant law. In Chinese too, when it was translated, it was translated as fa, which is the standard Chinese ideogram meaning the law. Dharma therefore suggests something like order, it might also suggest something like cosmos as opposed to chaos. Cosmos um, means a state of order as opposed to a state of disorder. So the Dharma is what gives order and structure, perhaps also meaning to life. Another Greek idea that to me has a certain resonance, although it's a different, 
has a different meaning is the word logos, the word. Um, but more as used by the Stoics, the idea that the world unfolds according to um, a logos, a, a certain rationality, a certain reason, which the Stoics understood to be the mind of Zeus or God. Now when we look at the, the earliest account that at least scholars believe um, to be of the Buddha's awakening, he describes his awakening as having arrived at this Dharma. This Dharma. And this Dharma, he says, he has arrived at is twofold. On the one hand, it is some, difficult to translate, paticca samuppada, the, the conditioned arising of things. We might say conditionality, dependent origination, uh, or simply contingency, or causality, perhaps even. None of those words exactly captures the idea. But the Dharma, therefore, that the Buddha woke up to was the kind of lawfulness in the unfolding of things. Um, there's a famous statement in the early texts where um, it says, the one who beholds the Dharma beholds conditionality. And the one who sees conditionality sees the Dharma. These are two very clearly identified things. But this Dharma is not just the, the lawfulness of the unfolding of the world, of nature, but it has another aspect, which is nirvana. Nirvana being simply the, the stopping of certain reactive habits of mind, usually called greed, hatred and confusion. So the Dhamma is also pointing to a certain way of being within oneself, of, of, of living a life that's not constantly being pushed and pulled and distracted and uh, confused by these powerful, instinctive, conditioned habits of mind, these inclinations, impulses, drives that keep sending us off into ideas and thoughts and actions that we subsequently regret. So this is also understood to be something to do with the Dharma, this capacity to live in a non-reactive way. Perhaps because this non-reactive mind 
is the one best suited to understanding the the conditionality of things, the contingency of things, the fluidity, the fleetingness of things. When we look at the word Dharma um, in Sanskrit, it comes from the root dhr, D-H-R, dhr. And dhr is the root meaning to hold, to hold in one's hand, to grasp, uh, apprendere, to take hold of something. The, the word Dharma is suggestive of a certain way in which we hold things. But also holding in the sense of a kind of protection. When you say a mother holds her child, it's more than just a mechanical gesture. It's also a protective embrace. And when I was uh, studying as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, I remember um, being told a number of times by lamas that the Dharma is that which holds you from falling into lower realms. And they understood that uh, Dharma, the Sanskrit word, um, essentially meant to hold. And they understood this holding as a kind of safety net, if you wish, a, a kind of framework that prevents you from slipping into the realm of the hungry ghosts, the realm of the hell beings, or the realm of the animals, which are, of course, just symbolic ways of talking about greed and hatred and delusion, confusion, very unfairly towards the animals, I feel. Animals are intelligent in a different way. I don't see why they should be seen as symbols of stupidity, but that is the Indian Buddhist way of looking at things. So in that sense, uh, the Dharma has uh, a kind of protective quality. It holds you in some way. So that when, for example, we're practicing mindfulness or some form of meditation, um, the mind is wandering around doing its thing, but at a certain point we say, nope, we're just going to hold it here. I'm going to hold myself in a state of attention and presence and awareness and concern and care. These are qualities that I wish to somehow uh, contain me, to hold me. So the Dharma, therefore, functions as a kind of frame. It frames your life. And it does so in a lawful, rational way. So if you take, for example, the four tasks 
embracing dukkha, embracing life, letting go of reactivity, seeing the stopping of reactivity, and cultivating a way of life, the Eightfold Path. That's really an operating frame, a framework which gives you the the skeleton of a philosophy of life, of a way of living, such that you seek to live according to that model, as it were, and to embrace situations rather than reacting to them, uh, to, to let your reactive impulses and habits just play themselves out instead of getting caught up in them, valuing those moments when you recognize a still, centered presence of mind and tasting and feeling and and, and coming to rest in that quality of attention and seeking as you go through the day, the week, the year to bring about what you regard as good and what you value to cultivate a particular way of life, to contribute to a certain kind of culture. When we look at the the foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, the fourth one is called Dhamma Nupasana, or the fourth foundation is Dharma, the same word again. Dharma. We have mindfulness of the body, which we're all familiar with probably, mindfulness of feelings or feeling tone, mindfulness of mental states, and then the fourth one, mindfulness of Dharma. Now despite the popularity of mindfulness, I've never yet seen anybody offer a course or even a convincing explanation of what the fourth foundation of mindfulness is. Usually, dharma is interpreted to mean something like mental objects, which might be the case, I don't know, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. After all, um, we've been looking at mind states and feelings, these are mental objects in a way. They're things that we, we know through our minds but not through our bodies. Sometimes Dharma here is just understood as everything that you encounter in life. That's how I used to explain it also. Um, the, the Satipatthanas, the cultivation of mindfulness starts with the breath and the body and then it gets subtler into feeling tone mental states, and then it expands to the totality of what's happening in any given moment or situation. Now, I think that is, in fact, correct. I think mindfulness does evolve in such a way. I'm not convinced that that's what's actually meant by Dharma in this sense. When you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness, the the classical text, 
the dharmas are described as the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the f- six senses, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths, which I would read as the four tasks. So what we have are, in, in fact, not shorthand for everything or mental objects, but we have distinct clusters of values. Or we have frameworks for doing something. The first one is the five hindrances. Attraction, aversion, lethargy, excitement, doubt. The point is not to be mindful of those states of mind, because that's already been covered in the third foundation of mindfulness anyway. Mindfulness of mental states. What I think this means is that we bear in mind, we remember, we hold in our attention this framework in which we are alert to what is pulling us away, we're alert to what's pushing us towards something, we're alert to what's making us excited, we're alert to what's making us drowsy and dull and lethargic, and we're alert to how the mind shifts and changes, jumping from one thing to the next, in uncertainty and vacillation, doubt. And that is an operative frame. That's a framework that's very helpful to bring to mind when we're practicing meditation. Am I distracted by something that's pulling me away? Am I distracted by something that's, uh, that I'm afraid of? Am I slightly hyper, my mind racing? Or am I feeling really low and dull and tired? These function as a kind of a barometer of our inner weather patterns. And it's a helpful frame to keep in mind to allow us to consider what a non-attracted, non-aversive, non-excited, non-lethargic, non-vacillating mind might be like. And that is the contemplative mind. That uh, these are, this model is presented as a way into the practice of jhana, the practice of meditation, the practice of absorption, of focus. So Dharma, I think, in this sense, um, uh, means, the f- means specific frameworks, we might say doctrines, teachings, that hold us, uh, give us a, f- a context in which to enact these tasks, embracing life and letting go of reactivity and so on. But the talk is titled, Dharma Gates Are Numberless. 
So now that we've looked at the word Dharma, and maybe for some of you now it's even more confusing than what it was before, <laughs> it's a word with many meanings. We find in China, and this of course is where the, Se the Son or the Zen tradition has its roots, we find a phrase called uh, Fa Men, or Pot Moon in Korean, which means Dharma Gates, or Dharma Doors. Dharma Gates, or Dharma Doors. And it's something that is recited every day, maybe more than once a day, in every Zen monastery in Japan, Korea, and China probably, and has been done so for th hundreds of years. The Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to practice them all. In China, one version of the Bodhisattva vow was um, written out in a verse. Sentient beings are infinite. I vow to save them all. Defilements are endless. I vow to sever them all, cut them off. Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to practice them all. And the Buddha way is unsurpassed. I vow to follow it. <coughs> um, quite a famous uh, uh, phrase that's chanted uh, widely. It's not originally a, a, uh, something from the Chan or the Zen school. It's first found in the, in the um, what's it called, the um, Tiendai teachings, which predate the arising of Chan or Zen in China. And in fact, the, there are earlier Mahayana Buddhist sutras which uh, uh, sh actually recognize these four vows as based upon the Four Noble Truths. So what does it mean therefore, Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to practice them all? Think about a gate or a doorway. Um, it's like this. It's got four sides. It's a rectangle, generally. And it can be either open or closed. That's, I guess, the fundamental symbolism of the gate. It's a passageway that can lead us into another space, or onto a road, or out of a country, or out of a city. But it can also be a barrier, a block. It can be shut, it can be locked. So what are these Dharma gates that are numberless? I feel the only way this makes sense to me is to recognize that every situation in life is a Dharma gate. And since situations in life are numberless, infinite, then Dharma gates, too, are infinite. 
So whenever we encounter a situation, and here we're sitting on a retreat, we're seated uh, on cushions, we're asked to perform certain uh, practices, uh, we walk, we eat, we rest, um, we're in a situation, we're in a Dharma gate, as it were. And within the course of a day, or even in <coughs> within the course of an hour, we can have many different <coughs> moments, many different gates appearing to us. Um, we might see someone that we recognize or we find attractive or unattractive, and that starts a story in the mind. We might remember something from what's going on in our lives, and that starts another story in the mind. Or we listen to the birds outside here. We become aware of some anxiety in our body. And each of these is a gateway. It can remain closed. We can become frustrated with it. We can become preoccupied with it. We can become agitated by it. We can become numbed by it. We can give in to the, the hindrances, as it were, and remain stuck, going round and round and round with whatever's going through our minds. And we don't have a gate. Or we can frame this situation with the Dharma. We can, in meditation, the hindrances. We can get a language and a handle for what we're going through that can already give us a degree of detachment from what's happening and a capacity to reaffirm our mindfulness, our awareness, whatever it is that we're, we're cultivating. So in this sense, we can turn what appears to be an obstacle or a point of stuckness and we can open it up. We can allow it to become a gateway that now affords new possibilities. And it's in this sense that a Dharma gate is a kind of nirvana. Nirvana has accumulated so much Buddhist baggage that it's very difficult to think of it without thinking of it as something very elevated or something very remote from my experience. Um, we've somehow reified it, made it into something apart from our ordinary experience. But really, nirvana is simply a way of describing how human experience can be non-reactive. Um, it doesn't, it's not something permanent. Once you've experienced it, it'll always be there. Oh, it comes and it goes. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of a certain way of being in the world, driven by our attachments and fears, our grudges, our dislikes, our self-importance. So much of what we find being narrated by ourselves, to ourselves, in our minds. 
But there are moments in life, and not only when we're meditating, but moments when we find ourselves alone in nature perhaps, or with someone we're very close to, where we feel a certain capacity just to rest and be still and to be unafraid and open to the moment. That in those moments we experience this uh, this quietness, this stillness, this clarity that has something nirvanic about it. Something's been blown out. The habitual restlessness and agitation and disquiet has momentarily ceased. And this is very much simply a contemplative space. It's not something unique to the Buddhists. It's a human capacity that we all share. It's interesting also that um, this nirvana is described in exactly the same way as the early Pali texts describe the Dharma. And there's a phrase that some of you might be familiar with that talks of the Dharma slash Nirvana as clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, and personally experienced by the wise. So here we have another perspective on the Dharma. A list of, of qualities that don't so much describe it as an external object or state of affairs, but describe it in terms of how we are related to it. The Dharma, and in this case this absence of reactivity, conditionality, um, is something clearly visible. It's something all is before our eyes. It's not esoteric. It's not somehow present in some other dimension of reality. It's not some absolute or ultimate. These were terms the Buddha had no time for at all. But the Dharma is actually visible clearly visible. It's visible in the changing, unfolding patterns of life, this lawful, natural way of things coming into being and going out of being. It's uh, visible in terms of our own experiences of stopping and being still and being quiet and being clear. It's also akaliko, immediate, literally non-temporal, non-temporal, or sometimes translated timeless, but that gives a somewhat different sense. It's atemporal. The Dharma, Nirvana are not conditions that you arrive at after going through a series of 
of steps in time. They're right here and now. Conditionality, the absence of reactivity, these are happening right now. Um, now this, of course, has quite a striking Zen flavor. Uh, this sounds like sudden illumination. It reminds us perhaps of these stories in the collections of koans where the master and the disciple are having some exchange and then suddenly the disciple says, Ah, that's what you mean. And then frequently, but you know, now I understand. It's always been there, but I've never seen it before. But this is a text that goes back to a very early layer of the Pali Canon. And this Dharma, this Nirvana, is also said to be ehipasiko, which means inviting. It calls us in a strange way. It's somehow attractive, uh, seductive. It, it draws us. It's inspiring, perhaps. And also, it's something personally experienced by the wise, not the Buddhists or the Hindus or the Jains or the Brahmins, it's by the wise, anybody. So, this periple, this uh, little journey we've made uh, through the meanings of the word Dharma bring us to what we're doing here. And in this sense, the Dharma is very much about uh, practicing and cultivating a way of life. We talk about a Dharma practice or practicing the Dharma. And of course this we think of often in terms of meditation. We might think to ourselves that I've, you know, we're now going to do a lot of practice on this retreat. I'm, I've come on this retreat in order to deepen my practice. And practice quite here means my capacity to work with my own mind and work in becoming more focused and still and caring and open and present and so forth. And each of us will have our own way in which we describe that or describe our practice of Dharma. And this is a practice, this uh, development of certain qualities, ethical qualities primarily, um, that constitutes our sense of being on a path, being on a way. But what I'd like to focus on particularly here is a passage from the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch. Um, some of you who are familiar with Zen Buddhism will probably know this text. It was uh, 
written probably around the 8th century of the Common Era, uh, and its author is Hui Neng, renowned as the sixth Chinese patriarch of the Chan or Zen tradition. The Platform Sutra is a kind of standard Zen text. And um, <clears throat> the passage I have in mind is where Hui Neng is talking about meditation itself, or the actual, in a sense, the, uh, the dynamics of meditation. And he speaks in terms of samadhi, which means something like collectedness, the ability to, to collect ourselves, to integrate and focus our, not just our attention, but more broadly something like the energies of our body-mind. And on the other hand, he speaks of prasnya, wisdom, intelligence, understanding. And this, of course, is a fairly standard Buddhist way of presenting meditation. You have vipassana and shamatha, which mean essentially the same thing, insight and um, tranquility, uh, wisdom and collectedness. It's much the same idea. And these are felt to be the kind of core dynamics of a contemplative state of mind. To be collected, but at the same time to be alert, to be bright, to be inquisitive, to be curious, to be sensitive. And Huineng uses um, a metaphor to describe this. He says it's like a like a candle um, on a table in a room. And as long as there's no wind coming into the room, the candle will be still. And when the candle is still, it is also at its most bright. The stiller the light, the better the illumination. And if you've been in a candlelit room, you'll know what they mean. If the, if the wind comes in and the flames start flickering, everything becomes dim and confusing. Shadows flickering about. Now this is an image that is of course very, very simple. Uh, we, can all, we can understand it immediately. Um, and it affirms another standard Buddhist idea that in meditation the aim is to integrate collectedness with um, intelligence or vipassana with shamatha, stillness with insight and so forth. But in the Indian text they never use the image of the lamp, at least not that I'm aware of. It's certainly not there in the Pali text. But what it points to, I think, is very helpful. And it gets us out of this idea that meditation is either doing concentration practice, 
or doing insight practices, but instead gives us a single image that experientially I find to be uh, to ring quite true. That the stiller my mind becomes, it doesn't get dull and thick, but actually it allows for a greater clarity, a greater a stillness that allows me to look more carefully at what's going on. And the more that I um, am somehow alert to what is unfolding and I'm able to to value and appreciate that and to enjoy it, that's also a state of mind that brings a certain peace, a certain stillness, a certain quiet. This seems to be what Huineng is talking about. Um, and we'll see tomorrow morning uh, in the instruction how this can be translated into a much more specific uh, practice which we'll be doing for the rest of the week. But the underlying principle um, is very much, I feel, about um, giving equal importance to the groundedness, the stability, the collectedness of our practice and the, the brightness, the sharpness, the clarity of mind that um, we also cultivate and, and value here as well. And remember that when they, uh, the, when, when, they um, uh, when they talk of meditation in China, Huineng, for example, he's using the word Chan, which in Japanese becomes Zen and in Korean becomes Son. But Chan is a homonym I think that's the right word, homophone. So it, 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 it's, it's an attempt by the Chinese to pronounce the Indian Sanskrit word jhana, jhana or dhyana in Sanskrit. So there's a, an awareness that the practice of chan is a practice of jhana. Uh, it's a practice of grounding your awareness in your body. When we read the early uh, descriptions of the jhanas in the Pali texts, you get this expression with your body suffused with contentment and well-being. It's a bodily experience. Uh, it's not just a spiritual state. It's an embodied uh, state of being that is agreeable and pleasant and sometimes quite blissful. And this is a dimension of meditative practice that I think is sometimes un undervalu undervalued. The sheer enjoyment of being physically grounded and still and somehow unified in our posture, 
for Dogen, the Japanese founder of the Soto school, uh, for him, uh, if, if the posture is right, you're already awake. Now, there's a certain rhetoric built into that, perhaps. But I think, nonetheless, he is capturing something rather vital. That this contemplative way of being, this capacity of being awake, is embodied. It's not just what goes on in the privacy of our minds. Awakening is an embodied, uh, enacted way of being. And Zen, of the different Buddhist traditions, I think shows this very well in its stories, in its anecdotes, in its art. But I'm going to stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.